we got a lot to do this morning. We've got, man, i got a, a bunch of information to get to you. I'm going to talk longer than usual. We're going to baptize somebody, which is really exciting, so let me just get to it. Uh, Wednesday night classes are starting again. Six weeks worth of classes on January 25th through uh, 29th through March 5th. There are going to be three classes offered. Uh, the class that will be upstairs is going to be Chad D. Miguel's class called uh, Restless Pilgrims. I just want to put in a little plug for that. I was on the inside watching Chad put this class together. It looks phenomenal. And if I wasn't doing one of my own, that's the class I'd probably be going to. Uh, No offense to the third class, but I mean, it looks really good. So I would be excited about signing up for that. The uh, the other two classes, um, we're going to be walking through the book of Philippians uh, for six weeks, a discussion-based class. It will not necessarily be lecture, but more discussion. And then Josh Prather, with a little bit of help from Sean Myers, are going to be doing a class kind of taking the iconic sayings of Redemption Church and going deeper with them. So what does it mean to be gospel-centered and outward-focused? What does it mean all of life, all for Jesus? Those kinds of things. They're going to be teaching that class. That class will also be a discussion-based class. So really excited about those classes. They start Wednesday night, January 29th. As always, we will feed you first. There will be child care. So we'll eat from 6 to 6.35 or so. And then we'll uh, be in the classes from about 6.40 till quarter to 8 on Wednesday nights for six weeks. Uh, A couple of great um, Saturdays coming up for us. Uh, Some of you, uh, if not all of you, should have gotten this card when you walked in. If not, they're at the uh, Connect desk. This is a um, sort of a a women's event that's going to be taking place at Caroline Van Slyke's uh, house. It's from 10 to 1 on Saturday, uh, January 25th. Uh, Josh Prather is going to be helping to lead some of that. And uh, she's going to have lunch there and all this stuff. Uh, Great event, so grab this and get more information about that. The following Saturday, um, we'll have more information on the city on this in in, uh, probably this week or early next week. Uh, The following Saturday, February 1st, I'm going to have a two-hour little breakfast here in in the church for anybody who is just interested. We're not looking for commitments. We're just... Just anybody who's interested in finding out more about what it means to be involved in prison ministry, I've had some people ask that question, and so I'm bringing Collis Huntington in, and he and I are going to do some stuff and kind of give you an idea of what it means to get involved in that, all the way from just writing letters to actually visiting and maybe even going and doing uh, services in, in, in it. But we're not asking anybody for commitment, we're just giving you information. I want to mention that please grab a bulletin today because inside the bulletin it will have helpful information for you for next week. It's the P.F. Chang's Marathon and if you know anything about this church it, it, it can get a little tricky getting here to church if you live outside of the square that is 7th Avenue, Camelback and 44th Street. If you live inside of that you're going to have no problem. If you live outside of that as some people do The easiest thing to do is just get on the 51, take the Thomas Road exit, and head east to the church. That's the best thing that uh, you can do. Uh, So be aware of that for um, next week. And next week we get to start back in Romans. I'm excited about that. I get to preach out of Romans 8, which is a wonderful um, chapter. Uh, Let's see, January 26th. uh, Oh yeah, January 26th. We announced last week, and that segues into what else we have to talk about. We announced last week that Sean Johnson has been called and is going to go to a Reality Church in Hollywood, and his last Sunday will be January 26th. So that evening, from 6 until 7.30, we're going to have a little dinner and a little celebration party of, of his ministry here for he and Kate and their family. And so if you want to come to that, it'll be on the city, and you should sign up for that as well so we know how much uh, dinner to get. 
But we're also excited uh, because uh, we told you last week when we announced that Sean was leaving uh, that Tyler and Sean and I were way down the road on a transition plan, and uh, we weren't kidding. I mean, and uh, this is happening very quickly, faster than it usually does, and we're very thankful for how God has moved in this. Uh, I told you last week that as soon as we could, we would announce what was happening, and we're going to announce it today. Very excited to announce that um, uh, Cody Kimmel is going to be coming in as our new pastor of church formation and worship. Uh, Cody is 29 years old. He's married to Lauren. They got two little boys. They live in central Phoenix. Uh, He and his family have been a part of Scottsdale Bible for about a thousand years and uh, uh, he's coming over to join uh, Redemption. Uh, He has a a Master of Divinity from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, But one of the best parts, I'm just going to tell you, one of the best parts Uh, about this is that um, when Sean was over at Scottsdale Bible, Sean was involved in helping to train Cody uh, in in, uh, leading worship. And uh, so they have a pretty good relationship. And so uh, Jackie and I have been able to get to know Cody and Lauren over the last uh, several weeks as we've been talking about this. But Sean really knows Cody. And so I asked him to stick around up here and just say a few words about uh, this transition that Sean is still a part of. So So you guys know I couldn't Great, thank you. Appreciate it. You can keep, yep. (laughs) All right, so we are, let me tell you something, we are beyond excited, still grieving and mourning that Sean is leaving, but excited uh, at how God has uh, moved uh, so quickly in being able to help us with that. Um, We're not exactly sure when Cody's going to be able to start here. He needs to uh, transition well out of his current uh, position. Uh, So we're thinking, we're hoping Uh, mid to late March, maybe early April. So we will have a little bit of an interim time. Sean has been working on that, who's going to be leading us during that time as well. So I think we're in good hands, but uh, we'll be welcoming him sometime in March or uh, April. So let me pray, and then we will transition into our anniversary message uh, this morning. God, we're thankful for your sovereignty, your grace, and, and right now, we're thankful for what we say about you all the time, that you're the great provider and protector, that you're always protecting us, you're always providing for us, e- even when it doesn't feel like it, even when we question it, even when we think you've, you've turned your backs on us, even when we, your protection and your provision look like something that we don't want, you're protecting and providing for us, and that's become evident again and clear again, uh, even right now, and so we're thankful for that. Uh, We love you and praise you and worship you, Um, but really we love you because you have loved us first in spite of ourselves. As Dominic said last, last week so well, you've been thinking about us long before we ever thought about you, and so we thank you for that. And so God, now as we open your word and we, and we study what Jesus had to say in Mark chapter 8, we just ask that you'd uh, open our hearts and our minds to that that you'd move, uh, move aside all of our biases, uh, move aside uh, anything that would get in the way of your message and just help us to receive it. I pray your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts to warmly receive your instruction, your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy anniversary, Redemption Church. It's interesting. Um, Redemption Church today is three years old, 
But many of the congregations in Redemption Church are actually older than that. And later on, when I tell sort of the story of Redemption Church, you'll see how that comes about. But Arcadia, for instance, our congregation, we're four and a half years old. Uh, Gilbert, uh, the the congregation out in the, one of the congregations in the East Valley is 25 years old. Tempe is seven or eight years old. Um, But we also have newer congregations. Um, West Mesa, our only bilingual congregation, is... is, um, uh, less than two years old, Flagstaff less than two years old, and, and uh, today uh, Alhambra Village is two weeks old. Even though they've been around for seven or eight years, it's two weeks old as a redemption uh, church, and we're excited about that. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we're going to do it through this passage in Mark chapter 8, which is a challenging, challenging passage. So I just I encourage you to, to, to prepare yourselves, because we're going to come right at you uh, this morning, as we always do, this passage we look at, Mark eight thirty one through thirty five, is also found in Matthew sixteen. The reason we're cho- I chose to use Mark is because generally Mark is understood to be the oldest of the Gospels, so it's the most original. Uh, but also, I will tell you that just personal preference wise, I love the Gospel of Mark, and since I'm the guy up here, I get to choose it. So, let me set this up for you. Prior to chapter eight, what's been happening? Well, well here you go. Uh, John, uh, I mean, uh, Mark starts right out in verse 1 saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he, he doesn't mince any words. He, he wants you to understand right out of the gate that what he's going to talk about is the good news of Jesus Christ, Lord, Savior, Messiah, creator of the world, come to save his people. That's what he's going to tell you the story of. And so he jumps right in. By, by chapter 8, Jesus has been baptized, he's entered his public ministry, he's been tempted, he calls his disciples, he's preaching and teaching and healing and doing miracles and he's casting demons out of, out of people. And, and one of the things that sometimes gets missed by people who read the Gospels is that Jesus is clearly letting people know that he is the Lord. His, his teaching is unequivocal at this point that he is the Lord. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. That means he is creator God of the universe. And Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark also happens to contain some of my favorite passages. I love that passage in um, beginning of Mark chapter 2 where, the, where Jesus is, is teaching a Bible study at a house. And there's so many people there that, that there's people standing outside of the house, out in the street, trying to listen. How many of you have ever hosted a Bible study at your house where people were standing in the street trying to listen? Anybody? Anybody? Now, yeah, see, Jesus has those kinds of Bible studies, and these four guys come with their friend who's been paralyzed, and they're trying to get in to see Jesus because they, they think he might be able to heal him, and, and they're so desperate to see Jesus that they actually, they can't get in, and so they go up on the roof of the house, and they dig a big old hole in the roof of the house and lower this guy down in front of Jesus, and, and it's just an amazing story with wonderful uh, drama. There's also Mark chapter 5, the last half of Mark chapter 5, that that really tense story where Jairus comes and tells Jesus, my 12-year-old daughter is dying, can you come and heal her? And, and he says, sure, and, and they start to go, but, but they're slowed down by the crowd. And then, and then Jesus gets waylaid by a woman who's been bleeding for a number of years and she wants to be healed. And then he enters into this conversation with her. And, and it's not in the text, but every time I read it, you can just, you can just sense in, in, in Jairus that he's, that he's thinking, hey, 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 hey. She, she has a problem, I understand that, but hers is a chronic problem. You can heal her anytime. My daughter is, is going to be dead any minute. You, come on, let her go. Let's get to my house. And sure enough, as they're standing there, uh, they come and they tell Jairus, hey, forget about it. Don't waste the teacher's time. 
she's already died. And Jesus turns to Jairus and he says, don't worry, just believe, just believe. And he does go ahead and heal his daughter. The drama that Mark brings is, is wonderful. And, and of course, all throughout the gospel up to Mark chapter 8 and after, Jesus is riling up the, the professional religious people. And I want to pause here just to make this point. The, the reason that these things are done and recorded is not so that you and I can discuss them academically, although we do. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just not the primary reason they're, they're done and, and recorded. The reason that th- these things were done and recorded is not so that we might be amused, even though we are. And I just told you how amused I was by those two stories. Uh, it's also not uh, done and recorded so that you and I can puzzle over them as, as if there's some deeply mysterious riddle to be solved. There really isn't any riddle. Jesus is God come in the flesh to save his people from their sin, to die as the atoning sacrifice on the cross, to be risen from the grave in order to to give you and I new life. And if we come to him, we are new creations in Christ, washed and cleansed by his blood, never to be condemned, never to be defeated, and never to be separated from the love of God. That's not a riddle. That's just the plain fact of who Jesus is. So that's not why this is written and recorded and done. The primary reason these things are done and written and recorded for us is that so, in, so that you and I will know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that He has come to save us. That's why they're recorded first and foremost. And that's exactly what happens in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 marks a pivotal point in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's that point where uh, he's been ministering primarily in the north in Galilee, all around those areas for um, two and a half, almost three years. And it's in Mark chapter 8 where he, with great purpose and focus, turns his gaze upon Jerusalem and says, I am going to Jerusalem to fulfill my mission and my purpose. He's got a few little stops on the way uh, in between, but But nevertheless, that's where he heads. And he starts to tell his disciples, that's where I am headed. And it is here in Mark chapter 8 that he gives the disciples the shock of their lives. It comes right after what what should have been the, and probably was, the highest point in the disciples' ministry with Jesus. They've had this wonderfully successful ministry for two and a half or three years. And and they've got to be thinking, we're at the top of our ministry careers. We're at the the top of our spirituality. It's wonderful. And, and, And they're walking somewhere and Jesus says to them, who do the people say that I am? And they answer and they say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist resurrected. Other people think you're Elijah who has come. And other people think you're the prophet. You know, Moses had talked about an important prophet in Deuteronomy 18. Maybe maybe that's who uh, you are. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers correctly. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, confirming that that Peter is absolutely correct, Jesus says to them, don't tell anybody. I don't want you to tell anybody yet. Okay? But in telling him that, he's confirming that Peter is right. So Peter and the disciples at that moment, these guys, that if you understand anything about how that works in their time, they were Jewish guys that did not make the cut. They weren't smart enough to be a part of any other rabbi's movement or teaching. At some point in their schooling, somebody came to them and said, you've been cut, you have to go and do your father's business, you're not going to make it in ministry. 
And Jesus came along and called them and gave them something that nobody at that time would get, a second chance to go into ministry. And, and now they're with this guy and they find out not only is he just this tremendous rabbi, but they find out he is the rabbi. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He is God come in the flesh. He's the, he's the guy that's going to rescue and restore Israel. We got him. We're the best. Look at us. That's what they've got to be thinking. And then Jesus says to them, they were happy for about three seconds. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself in Mark. It comes out of the book of Daniel. He taught them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. All the professional religious people are going to reject him. And he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would, lose his li- whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So here's what Jesus is telling these guys. That they're like, we got the king, and he's saying, I'm not going to be your king. At least not in the way you think. This is really important. Jesus is king, amen? He is the king, but he's not going to be the king in the way they think. And he's also not going to be the king in the way that many of us want him to be king. And he's letting them know. They've been with him three years. They've had this successful ministry. And, and they're doing what, what is more respected and revered for a man in the first century, a Jewish man in the first century could be doing. They've got it made. And Jesus is saying the party's over. This makes no sense to them. Jesus was supposed to restore the kingdom to Israel. Jesus, the Messiah, was supposed to bring them worldly power. Jesus was supposed to throw off the, yoke, the Roman yoke. Get, get, get those Romans out of there. Instead, he came to throw off the yoke of sin. That's really not what they wanted. There's that, there's that story that I mentioned earlier in Mark chapter 2. The, the paralyzed guy, and, and he's lowered down. And in verse 5, Jesus looks at him and looks at the guys, and it says, uh, seeing their faith, Seeing that they believed something, seeing their faith, he looked at the young man and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want you to think about this. He can't walk. He's there being lowered down on this mat. Is that really what he was hoping Jesus would say to him? His reaction, again, not in the text, but I have to think his reaction would be something like, well, gosh, that's really nice. Thanks a lot. But what I really want is to be able to put this mat away and get up and walk. But Jesus gives the guy what he needs, not what he wants. Eventually, he does heal him. He heals him for the purposes of demonstrating to the professional religious people that he is the only one, the only one who has the power and the authority to forgive sins. He does heal him, but originally he gives him what he needs. Jesus always gives you and I what we need, not necessarily what we want. And the problem we have is that it always looks a little bit different. He's telling these guys, 
through my crucifixion and my resurrection, I'm going to throw off your yoke of sin that you're enslaved to. You think you're enslaved to the Romans, but you're really enslaved to sin. I'm going to give you what you need, not necessarily what you want. They don't like it, though. Let me put it into more contemporary terms. Here's what they thought Jesus was supposed to do for them. Jesus was supposed to make their lives easier, make their lives more powerful, make their lives more influential, make their lives more comfortable and convenient, which is exactly what most people think Jesus is supposed to do for them today. They don't necessarily admit it out loud. Some do. Tuesday morning, I'm with a group of guys that I'm always with, and we're talking a little bit about this, and, 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 and I brought this up, and I was surprised Maybe not really, but it was interesting how many of these guys also have run into this before. Talking to somebody and they'll say something like this. You know, I tried Christianity and it didn't work. Okay, I apologize to you if someone gave you the expectation that the main purpose of Christianity is to work for you, but that's not the main purpose of Christianity. The main purpose of Christianity is to save you from your sins because that's what you need. You need a new life. You don't need it to work for you. You need to be reborn. You need to be a new creation. But that's what we think. We think Jesus is supposed to work for us. Christianity is supposed to work for us. And the disciples were uncomfortable with Jesus saying these things and and we get uncomfortable as well because because if Jesus is the Messiah and he must suffer and die, guess what? That means that we're going to have to, if our leader suffered and died, chances are that's in store for us too. Jesus even said, if they persecuted you, they're going to persecute me. Doesn't sound like a great marketing plan. Jesus will be rejected by the leaders and the elders and and the influential and powerful people in Jerusalem. Guess what? So are we. We're going to be rejected by the powerful people in our world. As Dominic said last week, we are a minority voice that cries out in favor of the gospel. Jesus died. Guess what? We're going to have to die too in order to have life. Before we can be born again, before we can have life, we must first die. There's a a wonderful quote, little quote that Tim Keller uses. I love it. He says this, If you haven't died, you're dead. If you haven't died, you are already dead. You're dead in your your sin and trespass. You're dead spiritually. You're dead to the things of God. You're dead essentially to what really matters. And until you die to that, you can't have life. So if you haven't died, you're already dead. This is... This is what some people call the first reversal of conventional wisdom in the book of Mark. That Jesus is not going to be the Messiah they thought, but that he's going to go and suffer and die. And and we always talk in Preaching Collective about boil your sermon down to one big idea. I got four or five big ideas today, and here's one of them. We need to understand that the kingdom of God does not begin with worldly power, but with atonement of sin and death. That's what the kingdom of God begins with. Because that's the only place where we can find real life. The kingdom of God does not begin with worldly power. That's what the disciples thought the kingdom of God would begin with. And Jesus says, no, it begins with the atonement of sin and death. The disciples had visions of grandeur and power and success. And Jesus was obliterating them. And I'll tell you, this happens in churches today all the time. All the time. It's rare, although it happens, it's rare that you'll hear a church leaders of a church proclaim that their goal for church is to make everybody comfortable. That's their big goal. 
The funny thing is, is that that is, that is actually the unspoken goal of most people who attend church. I, I, just, I just want to be comfortable. And churches naturally move towards comfort. That's just the way the human condition is. We naturally move towards comfort. And once we get comfortable, then we enter something that I call blissful complacency. And then we're no good to anybody, even ourselves. And, and, and during that blissful complacency, we begin to hear things like, well, I like, the thing, I like things the way they are at church. We got a good thing going here. Why do people have to leave? Why, why would we plant a church now? Things are going so well. Ah, good plan. Wait till the church is in terrible trouble and then plant one. Why do new people have to come? They're so messy. They bring the, all their messes with them, all their own baggage, and they, they, they get in front of me in the, in the bathroom, and then there's no donuts left. I mean, all those new people. Why do they have to come? Why do things have to change? You know what our problem is? We don't like to say this out loud. We dealt with it during Advent quite a bit, but here's the simple fact. You and I are consumers before we're disciples. That's just the way we are. And we need to understand that we are called by Christ to be disciples, not consumers. Listen, church, hear this, hear this. Church is not just another store on the mall. And the customer is not always right. Do you know who's always right at the church? Yeah, Jack DeBartolo. No, it's not Jack DeBartolo. You know who's always right at church? It's Jesus. Jesus is the only one who is always right at the church. We are not Nordstrom's, and the narrative is way different. Could you imagine walking into Nordstrom's or H&M or Crate and Barrel and you walk in and suddenly everywhere on their walls and, and, and on their name tags and everything, it says, deny yourself and pick, take up your cross. Could you imagine that? Okay. You walk into Crate and Barrel and you're walking over to one section and the lady runs over and says, don't touch that pan, deny yourself and take up your cross. Close down all the malls real fast. <laughs> okay. We need to understand that the kingdom of God does not begin with worldly power and with consumerism. And Jesus said this to Peter plainly. It says in the text, he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside. Throughout Mark, Jesus would teach and the disciples would kind of stand there next to him and you know, Again, you can just sense that they're going, yeah, get him, Jesus. You tell him, Jesus. You tell him. And then they, they'd retreat and they'd get Jesus alone and they go, okay, what did you say? I, I don't get what you just said. Okay? They were confused half the time. Okay? Not here. Jesus tells this to them plainly. He doesn't want any misunderstandings. He's going to be very clear about what's happening. And look at Peter. Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny how when you and I don't understand something, we think we can fix it by controlling it? That's our natural flinch. If we don't understand something, we, do, we try to control it. And that's exactly what Peter is doing here. The, and the language in the Greek is really clear. I wish this came out better in the English. But what the, the verb translated, Peter took him aside, means that Peter literally walked up to Jesus and grabbed his body and physically with force removed him away from the presence of the other disciples. Peter wanted to control the Messiah. There's a little bit of Peter in all of us. That's what you and I want to do as well. And this is why Jesus responds as sharply as he does to Peter, which some people think is a little bit too sharp. 
Not really. Not for what Peter is doing. Jesus had to get into his face. He says, get behind me, Satan. And I understand, Jesus is not saying to, that, that, that Peter is literally Satan. There is a literal Satan. And he is out to destroy you and me. He's not saying that Peter is suddenly the incarnation of Satan. The word Satan, the name Satan, is a bit of a double entendre. It also means adversary or opponent. So, so he's telling Peter, you're, you're an adversary because you're not a, your mind is not on the right things. You're not, on the, you're not on the team with us or with me. And that always makes me ask this question. And the question is simply when. When, when will we understand that when God wants something one way and purposes it so, and we try to control it and make it happen another way, we are opposed to God. We are his adversary at that point. We're Satan. So when we decide what's best for our kingdom, rather what's best for his kingdom, we set ourselves up for disaster. Jesus said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but you have set your minds on, you are focusing your mind on the things of man, and as a result, you're acting like somebody who is set on things, the things of man, on worldly things. And you know what this statement is really about? This is really important. It's about trust. Jesus is saying, you don't trust me, Peter. You don't. I, I've said this so much lately because I run into so many people that struggle with this. So many of us want to figure out how to please God. You understand that pleasing God is at best a secondary thing in the life of a Christ follower? That the primary thing is trusting Him. Having faith in Him. The Greek word is pistos. It means trust, faith, or believe in. And it's used throughout the, the New Testament. And in fact, it's used in Hebrews chapter 11 where the author of Hebrews specifically says, without faith, without pistos, without faith, without trust, it is, anybody, what? Impossible to please God. You can't please God apart from trust. That's the primary thing. And Peter didn't trust Jesus. He trusted himself. But Peter was a pleaser. Any of you a pleaser? Anybody tired of that life yet? But Peter was a pleaser, man. He was a suck-up. He was impetuous. Peter would always say what he thought was the right thing to say so that people would affirm him and he'd look like a smart dude even if it was the wrong thing to say. And as a result, Peter was a manipulator. And even here, like I said, some people say, well, well, Peter's just trying to help Jesus. Peter's heart is good. No, it's not. Peter's heart is all about Peter. He didn't trust Jesus. He trusted himself. And one of the biggest challenges that the church has today, which is why I'm thankful I'm with redemption, because we struggle against this very well, I think, if I can pat ourselves on the back. But one of the biggest challenges the church has today is trusting its head, which is Jesus. And I understand that trust is not easy when things aren't going your way and you're not being made comfortable and you're suffering and there's pain and our agenda gets shoved aside for somebody else's agenda. I understand that. So Peter is not unusual. I'm not saying in the least that Peter is unusual or unique or special. By throwing Peter under the bus, I'm throwing all of us under the bus because there's a little bit of Peter in all of us. We all struggle with this. Peter is you and me. He's way more concerned about the things of man and the things of this world than the things of God. And then Jesus says in verses 34 and 35, take up your cross, deny yourself and take up your cross. This is, bam, bam, the second reversal of conventional wisdom that we find in Mark. 
Because the mantra back then, although they, don't, they didn't say it the way we do today, the mantra back then is the same as it is today. Live for yourself. Feather your own nest. Look out for number one. Make sure you're okay. But Jesus has another idea that's centered in His sacrificial, substitutionary atonement for our sin. And it's not some quaint notion of helping others while you still get yours. No, He says you need to completely empty yourself. You need to deny yourself. You need to die to yourself. And it's not just that you're going to die to yourself, but you're also going to bear burdens. You're going to bear other people's burdens and you're going to bear your own burdens. It's going to be challenging. But for a guy who suffered on a cross for us, he can call us to this. You understand that. He's calling us to a life of total otherness. And, and here's another thing. It's not just that we, we mourn this life as a Okay, now I'm a Christian. I'm going to have to suffer and I'm going to have to deny myself and and I'm going to have to bear everybody else's... That's not it at all. When Jesus says deny yourself, what He's really saying is do not dread the loss of your life. Do not... I used to dread the loss of my life. Now I'm so thankful that I lost it for Jesus because what you gain is so much more. You gain Christ. You gain Jesus when you lose your life. Here's what we should dread. What we should dread is the loss of our soul. Jesus states this very clearly in other places in other Gospels when He says, don't fear somebody who can just kill you. Who you really should fear is the one who can kill, kill you and put you in a place called hell. That's the loss of your soul. Don't dread the loss of your life. Dread the loss of your soul. So Jesus, the head of the church, the Lord and Savior, He tells the people that are closest to Him uh, that, that things aren't going to go the way they want. They want it one way, they're going to go the other way. They're not just going to go slightly the other way, they're going completely the opposite. But, but he says it's, it's for the purpose of submitting ourselves to something bigger. Submitting ourselves to the sovereignty and the goodness and the glory of God. And if it applies to them, it applies to us too. And I want you to consider, as we struggle against this, you need to consider, I've thought a lot about this this week. If, if our worldview, and our worldview is, is the grid through which we look at everything in life, if our worldview really is centered on a man who went and died on a cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for others, then our lives necessarily, necessarily will have to be one of submission, sacrifice, service, otherness, and yieldedness. It will necessarily have to be a life of humility. It, it will not be a life that only looks out for our best interests, but will look out for the best interests of everybody else. It's a life contrary to conventional wisdom. When Redemption Church was formed three years ago, many people said, that doesn't make sense. I've been a part of Redemption for almost two years now, but when Redemption was being formed, uh, I wasn't on the inside, but I, I have been close friends with a lot of the guys at Redemption for a long time, and I was watching this thing being formed and, and I was listening to the chatter in the community as it was being formed. People were saying, that's contrary to conventional wisdom. That doesn't make any sense. And here's why. Uh, Maricopa County, Phoenix, has often been known in, in the broader church world as a place where churches really don't cooperate much with each other. Y you see, we, we, we've been in an environment for years in, in Phoenix, in Arizona, where rather than than cooperating, churches compete with each other. Rather than affirming each other, we're jealous of each other. Rather than being outward focused, we're more inward focused. 
And in an environment like that, an environment like that l- listen to how God worked in the leaders of these guys. The leaders of East Valley Bible Church, the leaders of Praxis Church, Tempe and Arcadia, the leaders of, of, of Second Mile Church out in Queen Creek. Listen to how God, he, God came to them and said, you can be better together for the sake of the gospel in Arizona. And they said, yes. They saw that the bo- gospel could be better together. little timeline of of redemption and it was spring 2010 when the idea was first hatched when those guys were together and having coffee and just talking and you know playing a lot of what if games and then suddenly one of them I don't know who but one of them like well what if probably Tyler what if and then they said you know that that would never work and then the spirit just kept working on them and then they're like well maybe it will work and then they started to get excited about it and they kept talking about it. And again, they kept hearing from others, that'll never work, you guys are crazy. They didn't. But they kept talking about how, I know we could be better together. Think about how together we could raise up and train and send out leaders, and especially young leaders. If you look around Redemption, the seven congregations, you see a lot of really wonderful, gifted, and talented young leaders. That's exciting. I'm not worried about the next generation. Do you know how often I've been around people worried about the next generation, especially people who are older than me? I'm not worried about the next generation. They said, we could birth new churches. And really, they said, they said, we could surge into the world for the gospel in a new and exciting way by sharing resources and sharing sacrifice. And then in August of 2010, After only a few months, they said, let's do it. And then January of 2011, they did it. It's done. We're Redemption Church now. And then throughout 2011 and 2012, very very admittedly, it was awkward. And we stumbled along and we struggled and and we're trying to figure out how to be together. And we made great strides. But even in the midst of that, in 2012, we were still able to birth West Phoenix. I'm sorry, West Mesa. And Chris Amaro and his team there. And we were able to birth Flagstaff. And Vince Garvey and his team up there. And there's some awesome stuff going on in Flagstaff that I'm going to share in a minute. And then in 2013, we got serious about our conversations with Aaron Daly and Life Connection Church. And, and now today we celebrate our two-week anniversary as, with... with uh, Redemption Alhambra Village as our seventh congregation. And in 2014, you need to know that Tucson's on our radar. I know some of you are like, really? The people in Tucson need the gospel? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Maybe should have started there, but Tucson is on our radar. The Northwest Valley is on our radar. And in the midst of this, it's been unbelievable how God just keeps working and guiding and building on that. And in the midst of this, we continue to work toward clarity, not about being together, but how we operate together. And we're getting less awkward at it. And it's getting better and better all the time. And the best part is that God continues to bring us great young leaders. People like Sean Myers and Josh Prather and, and now Cody Kimmel and others. And it's been great. Just a couple of quick stories to share with you. This is funny to me, uh, but it's wonderful. Um, the, the people at Redemption Alhambra Village, 
when they were still Life Connection Church a couple of weeks ago, they decided that they wanted to spend uh, New Year's Eve at the church and ring in the new year at midnight and cross over that timeline into becoming a part of redemption. So they celebrated the new year in their church, celebrating that they were a part of, of the redemption movement now. And please hear me, they, they don't, they're not placing their faith and trust in redemption. They don't think redemption is their savior. It's not. They know that. They know who Jesus is. They're just glad to be with us because they know that we're better together. Uh, here you go. Flagstaff launches a year and a half ago. And Vince is doing a great job and God is moving up there. The church is about 150 people now every Sunday in Flagstaff. That's really good growth. Uh, especially in a town like Flagstaff. It's tough going up there, I'll tell you. Um, but the biggest challenge they've had is where to meet. I, I don't know, if anybody's been up there, you know, you, you know, it's been hard for them to find a place to meet and have church and everything. This last week, I found out, this last week, they signed a lease for the Orpheum Theater in downtown Flagstaff. Is that, that's awesome, isn't it? And if you know anything about the Orpheum Theater in downtown Flagstaff, this is like, how did God give us this? In fact, some of you right now are sitting there thinking, oh, you're a liar. They didn't get the Orpheum Theater. Yes, they did. It's official. They're going to be moving in in three weeks. Can you believe that? It's a 700-person venue. And you know what? God's going to fill it. God's going to fill it up there. It's awesome. Um, and, and the connection, it's been fun. You know, a lot of people who live in the Valley like to go up and, and spend summers in Flagstaff or Munns Park or whatever, a lot of them go to Redemption Flag now during the summer. And what's interesting is Vince also sends a lot of his students from NAU to Redemption Churches down here, and salvations are occurring as a result of it. It's been awesome. The Redemption connection is, is, is growing. I've got to tell you, this foster care and adoption movement that we've been involved in, I don't know that it, that it happens without shared resources of redemption. And if it does happen, it doesn't happen with the power that it's happening right now. We have literally hundreds of families who are alleviating the foster care and adoption crisis in America through redemption and other churches that we've joined with. We are better together alleviating this problem, this crisis in Maricopa County of foster care and adoption. We're better together. We announced last week that Arcadia is involved in a, going to be involved in a movement in, in Ethiopia with Win Souls for God and, and Josh and John Sanborn are going to be going there in, in March to check it out and, and help us to go deeper there. Again, I'm telling you, I'm not sure that would necessarily happen without the, the power that we have behind shared resources. We're better together. And then uh, we did this once uh, last year. We're doing it again this year. There's a slide for this, this mission tour on Saturday February 15th. Jack, I think you were involved with this last year, or were you involved with it this year? Where are you, Jack? I know you're down there somewhere. Aaron, was it last year you were involved in this, or was it this year you're going to be involved? They, they came and looked around, and yeah, okay. Um, this is a mission tour of our city, talking about how all of life is all for Jesus. We're going to be cro crossing uh, ethnic and religious lines with this, trying to figure out how the gospel works in the marketplace in various contexts. It's a wonderful tour, and I would highly encourage you to get involved in this. Saturday, February 15th, you can sign up uh, for this through the city. But again, we don't do this if we're not together. We don't have community and global initiatives, which Josh Prather is the, is the executive director of. We don't have that without redemption being together. Uh, we're better together. 
we're willing to die. We're not perfect at it. We're not even good at it necessarily, but we are willing to die to ourselves and sacrifice for the bigger picture, which is the gospel. We share resources, we, we share sacrifices, and we share credit. And I say that with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek because all the credit belongs to God because if He doesn't build this house, then we laborers work in vain. We're, we're a church that, that wants to magnify the glory of God and, and reduce us. We're, we're a church that's willing to talk about common ground with people, common ground for the gospel, rather than what so many people in evangelical circles unfortunately do, and it hurts my heart to have to say this, but so many people look for the differences first and want to debate those differences rather than how we can be better together for the gospel. What can we do together for the gospel? And we look at a guy like Sean Johnson, whose who's imprint on this congregation is, is deep and will be lasting, but we're sending him out. I know you're going, he was going to go anyway. Yeah, he was going to go anyway, but we're also going to send him. There's a difference, you know. We are gladly sending him out. While we're mourning the loss of Sean, we're gladly sending him out. And I get it. I've said for years and years and years, Arcadia has, has been a church that for our size, we have amazing music for a church our size. But God is good and God is faithful and he's going to take care of us even in the midst of this. And we should celebrate with, with Sean and Kate, even in the midst of our grief. Don Wilson, who's the pastor of Christ Church of the Valley, a little tiny family church over on the northwest side of about 20,000 people. He was here um, a couple months ago speaking at a surge lunch, and there's about 100 pastors here, and he's speaking. And beforehand, Tyler had asked him if he would list his top 10 uh, ministry victories and his top 10 ministry regrets. And, and I was especially interested in the regrets. It's easy to talk about victories, but when he got to his regrets... He said, listen, one thing I regret and one thing I would do differently if I had to do it over again is I would celebrate other people's victories in ministry more heartily. He said, I I was the type of guy that would look at somebody else's ministry victory and I would wonder what's wrong with me and I would translate their victory only through the eyes of what's wrong with me and how does it affect me. He says, I would do better at what Paul says in Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're really good at weeping with those who weep, aren't we? But we struggle to rejoice with those who rejoice. Somebody comes and says, hey, I just got diagnosed with cancer. It's easy to, to, to come alongside of them and weep with them. But somebody comes and tells you that some wonderful, magnificent thing has happened in their lives. You know, the reality is that most of the time we look at them and we go, great, yeah, congratulations. And then we slink away and wonder why God can't do that for us. We should celebrate these victories. And we need to remember this is not the first time that it's going to happen. We're a church that sends people out. Do you understand that the founding pastor of Redemption Arcadia sent himself out? He heard the call of God on his life clearly to go to San Francisco and plant a church. It's called Redemption San Francisco, by the way. Justin Anderson. And nine months after he was here, he sent himself out. New Valley Presbyterian in Ahwatukee plants a church downtown. We sent people with them too, gladly. We send people out, and they're not the only ones. Let me talk a minute about Sean Myers. He's become a fixture. You understand that Sean has been here almost as long as I have been? 
just a few months less than I have been, he's become a fixture. He's somebody who helps give us a a sense of consistency around here. And he's smart, he's gifted like you wouldn't believe, and we love him. I have fallen in love with this guy. And we, we want him here. Even a couple of weeks ago, Jackie, my wife, walks up to me and says, don't let Sean go. My wife has fallen in love with Sean Myers. <laughs> and other people, too. They, it, she's not the only one. People are, man, Sean is wonderful. We can't let him go. And the answer is, no. We send people out. Someday, God is going to call Josh and Rachel. And I don't want them to go, but they're going to go. Not because we're bad and and God wants to punish us or it's not very good here, but because He has something better for their giftedness. Someday He's going to call Eugene. Not because because we're bad, but but He's going to call Eugene to something else that He needs to do for the Gospel. I don't want Eugene to go. I'm not looking forward to that day. Someday I'm going to get hit by a truck training for a marathon. I don't want to get hit by a truck. God calls us, and we go, and we send people out. I was, I was talking to the elders about this a couple weeks ago, and it came up again. It was really interesting. Uh, uh, scholars say that, that one of the challenges that, that American culture has is that we are what's called low ambiguity tolerant. Low ambiguity tolerant. That means we hate uncertainty. We hate ambiguity. We demand guarantees. We demand certainty. We demand comfort. We demand convenience. We demand stability. We demand all these things that we don't get. We demand things that will benefit us. We tend to love what we know. And we surely hate what we don't understand. And I will tell you, this is why so many people struggle with Jesus. He gives us certainty in the area of salvation. Oh yes, He does. That's clear. Next week, I get to preach on Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is unbelievable certainty in Jesus Christ. And all through the middle of Romans 8, where there is no defeat for those who are in Christ. And then at the very end, there is no separation from God for those who are in Christ Jesus because of His love for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is certainty there, but beyond that, there's tension and uncertainty, and that's why people don't like Jesus. And you know one of the places where, where there's the most tension and uncertainty is in His magnificent grace. We, don't, we, we like grace for ourselves. We like getting let off the hook. We do. But I've said this before, we love grace for ourselves and justice for everybody else. That's what we want. And so it confuses us and bothers us when grace is extended. There's a little movie that was in the theaters last month that, that I highly recommend. Um, it, it's called Philomena. Has, any, has anybody seen that movie? Okay. Uh, at the end of that movie, I'll try not to do too many spoilers, but at the end of the movie, there's this beautiful picture of the gospel that I was just blown away by and left weeping. Um, Philomena is the true story about a woman named Philomena, Judy Dench, in her, in her mid-60s. When she was in, in, in the 1950s, she was a teenage girl, um, and she got pregnant, and she went to a convent. This convent in Ireland took in teenage, teenage pregnant girls who had gotten pregnant outside of 
marriage. And they cared for them through their pregnancy, had the baby there, and then cared for them after the pregnancy, allowed the the mothers to see their babies uh, for one hour every day. But then, tragically, after 18 to 24 months, they would sell the baby to a rich family in America for adoption. And Philomena went through that. She saw her baby being taken away when her baby was 18 months old. And so on, on her, what she knew was her baby's 50th birthday, somehow she gets hooked up with a journalist named Martin. Used to work for CNN, and he's not doing anything right now. And he decides to pair up with Philomena. They're going to go to the United States, and they're going to find uh, Philomena's son. And, and the rest of the movie is pretty much about that story, and it's a kind of a wild ride. But the story ends full circle with Philomena and Martin back at the convent in Ireland. And you need to understand something about Martin, the journalist. He is a lapsed Catholic who's angry with the church and angry at God, and he's, and he's very willing to show it. And there's also one other character in the movie, uh, Sister Hildegard. Sister Hildegard was there when Philomena had to give up her baby, and Sister Hildegard's position was, that's your penance for your sin of having sex outside of marriage. You had to suffer this punishment because of that sin. And she held that position throughout her whole life. And, 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 and Philomena knew that Martin was angry when they drove up to the convent and, and she made him promise before they went in. She made him promise, do not make a scene. This is not about you, it's about me and closure with this convent and with Sister Hildegard. And Martin promised. Of course, he didn't keep his promise. The minute they got into the convent, they got separated and Martin went and looked for Sister Hildegard and he found her and he just laid into her. He was giving... Sister Hildegard, the justice that she actually deserves. He just laid into her. Philomena hears it and, and comes running. She comes running in and she immediately begins to scold Martin. She says, stop that. Stop that. You must stop that. I told you you couldn't make a scene. And then she turns and she says something to Sister Hildegard. And Sister Hildegard just nails the coffin she, she says, once again, you went through this because it was your penance for your sin. And, and you're just sitting there going, lay into her, Philomena. Lay into her. Give her what she deserves. Give her justice. And Philomena turns to her and she says, Sister Hildegard, I have something to say to you and I want you to listen to me very carefully. She says, I forgive you for everything that has happened. And Martin explodes. He doesn't understand grace. And he doesn't understand how Philomena could do that. Philomena is right in the center of the gospel and she gets the gospel. And Martin explodes at her. And he begins to yell at her. And he cusses at her. There's cussing in this movie. Just a little disclaimer. And he begins to cuss at her. And and then he says, just like that? Just like that you can forgive her? And here you go. This is what I want you to hear. Philomena looks at him and says, it's not just like that. Don't you understand how hard that was for me to do? Don't you understand that I have 50 years of this building up inside of me? Do you understand how difficult it was for me to forgive her? That was hard. Do you understand how many people look at the cross of Christ and say, really, that's it? Just like that? I'm forgiven of my sin? Oh, pretty cool. That's why we don't take Him very seriously. And that's why we really don't understand grace. And that's why so many people really don't even like him. 
But he went to the cross and hung on the cross and suffered that excruciating death. And it wasn't just like that that he forgave us. He spent three years in public ministry knowing that that was his future. That he was going to go to the cross and he was going to suffer the shame of an excruciating death. And not only that, but have his father pour out his wrath on him because he becomes sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I could be made righteous. It wasn't just like that. It was deep and hard and difficult. And that's how much you and I are loved. It's the grace of God. And that's what Redemption Church is about. Coming together to be able to tell other people about. To tell them about the gospel and God's love for them. We're a church that's willing to sacrifice for that. We're a church that's willing to send people out for that. We're a church that's willing to plant other churches. We're going to rejoice with others when they do well in ministry. And we're going to be a church that glorifies and enjoys God forever no matter what it takes. Amen? All right, let's pray and we'll have our time of response and then we'll baptize somebody. God, thank you for your call on our lives. We pray that we would would understand deeply what it means that you have saved us through your son, Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that that took. God, we thank you for the, for the love that you give us through your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.